0: Thank you. Uh, hi, everybody again, I'm Michael and I'm a compulsive overeater. <laughs> Thank you for letting me speak to you today. I, you know you, you, I've never done a lead share in front of real people in a room. <laughs> 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 only, only on Zoom, so this, we'll have to see how this goes, but um, hopefully HP comes through, but I was thinking today about all the things that you can say, and for some reason, I have been thinking about my maternal grandmother. My maternal grandmother, her name was Mary Jane, and I loved her. She died when I was nine, but I loved her because she and our family was the regal one. And um, you know, I come from nothing. I mean, I come from a very blue collar family in Philadelphia. My father worked in a garage. My mother was a housewife and I have three older brothers and we lived in a row home. I shared like literally a nine by 10 room with my brother till I was 20. And, but I was thinking of my grandmother because she was sort of like the lady of the matter even though she, she didn't come from it. She, they, all my grandparents emigrated from Ireland. And they, she lived down the street from us when I was growing up and she had a color TV. I'm dating myself, but like that was fancy. Like she had a color television. And so every year back in those days the networks showed The Wizard of Oz. I was obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. And I insisted that she come up to our house to watch the black and white part and then, at the commercial, when Dorothy and and I we had to run down the street and, and go to the color And she went away, She went along with it every year. Every year, she, I dragged her down the street to watch the color party at her house. And I've been thinking about her lately because of my Wizard of Oz stuff and why I was so attached to that. And it was our thing, you know, when you have things with your grandparents. And I thought, even then, as a child, I was searching, right? I was searching for the big answer. I was searching, I was so drawn to that idea that you could travel and then like, there would be this magical place that would sort of solve everything for you. And I think that comes from the fact that I grew up, and I think a lot of us did, feeling other. Feeling like I didn't quite fit into this construct and then trying to sort of navigate it that I could fit in i was shy and artistic and sensitive and a little feminine in a very irish catholic family that those qualities were not viewed very thoughtfully and so i learned very early to suppress certain parts of myself in order to manage you know people go on these chairs and they talk about their terrible families my family was perfectly fine you know i was not abused i was taken to church every week we had dinner every night at six we went to a Gaudy Motel at the Jersey Shore for a week every summer. like, And it was a very big, sprawling family. Um, my aunts all lived around us. They had kids. I knew my cousins. There was an annual family softball game every July. There was an annual family Christmas party every January. We were the Kennedys without the money. <laughs> so, But when you grow up in that kind of sort of hurly burly Irish Catholic environment, and you're me, you realize like, mm, the things that are make me me are not the things that are going to make me fit in here. And so, I also, my brothers were 5, 7, and 10 years older than I am, so they were sort of bunched up and then I was sort of on the tail end of the caboose and mm-hmm. I sort of tried to stay out of everybody's way with my Hardy Boys books and my paint-by-number sets and, and I was lonely a lot. I grew up alone. I spent an inordinate amount of time alone, even though I was in this big family. And as a result, I needed comfort. And I found comfort in my sort of diversions, but I really found comfort in food. And my family was more than willing to shovel at me to keep me happy. My mother was vivacious and a party girl, and she liked a good veal parm at the tavern. And my father was an alcoholic, um, but not an abusive alcoholic, he was withdrawn. And um, I called him the nice man who lived with us. You know, he was not meaningfully involved in our family in any way. Now look, he got sober when I was 25 and his act two was the biggest reformation since Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, he became a literally a different person and I think of him so often uh, because I feel him on this journey with me in a very meaningful way, and I'm so sad that he did not get to see me in recovery. Because I think that would have been really special. We were very close in his act two. But act one, you know, he was sort of the guy who sat at the end of the table shoveling in meatloaf and going to bed, like. And uh, you know, my mother, again, she, by the time I was sort of in my formative years, she had sort of lost interest in in sort of us. And uh, it's funny, at her 80th birthday, we all gave a toast, my brothers and I, and I said, I was the only teenager who waited up for his mother to get home. That's true. But in that construct, I had the food, and television, and reruns, and so I would come home from school, where I was bullied terribly, because there was nothing more Darwinian than Catholic school in an urban environment. And, uh, I had, you know, and I ate myself into oblivion. To when, you know, and then you're a fat adolescent, right, which is the worst because then your mother's taking you to department stores and yelling out at salespeople, where's the husky department? You just want to die. And I got to high school and thought, I cannot do this. I just can't be fat all through high school. This is going to be awful. So then I found restricting. What if we just stop eating? That'll solve everything because then I'll be thin and everything will be great so i took up boxing and long distance running also my effort to assert my masculinity right see i'm gonna box i boxed for two years long distance ran and then i got really skinny and stayed skinny for the better part of 15 years you know because if you don't eat it turns out you get skinny it's not sustainable because what i found out and i didn't realize that at the time was that our disease is the most patient disease going. It will wait you out. It will stay in the corner for years, just waiting for the, for the opening. I came out at 30, which is late. I spent my 20s in a very destructive, closeted relationship with my best friend and ended up as an usher in his wedding. Now, imagine how terrible you have to think of yourself to be madly in love with someone, to be having an affair with them, and then to be an usher in their wedding to somebody else. Big Catholic ceremony, the mitre, this, oh, <laughs> <laughs> 12 bridesmaids, it was something. And I, nobody knew, right? Like nobody knew. I stood up there by myself and crumbled by myself in my, in my own self-loathing. And I look back and I look at pictures of myself back then and I just don't even recognize myself. I really don't. Because the sadness in the eyes, you cannot run. No matter how many smiley pictures there are, it's always there, you can see it. And I can see it and it's tough to look at, honestly, today. I have lived with a lot of regret about all of this because I wish I could tell you that I came out and everything was all sunshine and the hummingbirds came in and it was all solved and it wasn't because then I started eating again because I couldn't deal. Telling my family, dealing with having to reinvent, blow my life, and figure it out again. How am I gonna do this? And I moved, I kept moving because I thought that would work. So I moved to Northern New Jersey, and then Boston, and then New York. And the irony is is at the same time all this is happening, I'm building this career. I'm a writer, stemming from my creativity as a kid. And I forged an amazing career as a magazine writer, um, writing for magazines you've all heard of. And I get fancy, you know, my mother used to say, why do you always have to be fancy? <laughs> and I loved being fancy. And I was very, very fancy. <laughs> but I was completely broken on the inside. So on the outside, people look at me and they think, wow, you know, you know Michael's just back from Russia. Like, yes. And Michael hates himself, and Michael is looking in the mirror every night, telling himself what a terrible, awful, broken, awful, awful person he is, who no one will ever love. And of course, no one did love me, because I didn't love myself. And you can't attract real, meaningful love if you don't love yourself. You can attract all sorts of people, (laughs) and I did, who were just as broken as I was. And shocker, none of it works out. I spent decades overeating and then restricting and then overeating and restricting. And the pattern would be, I would compulsively overeat. I would get very fat. I'd get tired of that. I'd get tired, I would feel invisible. I would feel all that self-loathing. I would get into restricting because I would meet some guy who was the answer. Then I'd get really skinny for him. I'd have to earn his love, right? See, I I was never, if you were interested in me, I wasn't interested in you, because that was not, what was that, you know what I mean? If I didn't have to fight for you to prove myself, then it wasn't worth having. I tossed away so many people who were awesome people, and I think of them now, and they're all married to other awesome people now, and I think I was just too shattered inside to know that, to know what was healthy. And so ended up in a bunch of, not abusive relationships, but in relationships where I was constantly getting the carrot dangled and chasing after it, and then invariably not getting it. And so then, what did I do? I was like, well, screw you, I'll eat. Started throwing lavish dinner parties where the only guests were Duncan Hines and Betty Crocker. (laughs) And then when you get fat, I'd end up at parties and I always say this, that there's nothing worse than going to a party where two thin people are arguing who's fatter. And in gay culture, body image is, is just nuts. I mean, it is, just, it is just so prevalent. And I would go and I'd stand there and I would watch these guys talking about their workouts. and Oh, I only did 22 reps today, and I only, oh my gosh, I feel so fat. I had like, you know, a cracker. (laughs) And I would just stand there with some bitter glass of Chardonnay and think, how soon can I get out of here? How many fast food places are between here and home? What supermarket's still open? How many pints of ice cream can I buy? What's on cable? Like, that's it. Baked my way through life. And that was the pattern for decades, decades. A friend of mine got into this program earlier. She knew, I mean, we all know each other, right? <laughs> like we, all, we can spot each other at 20 paces. And she said, I think you should go to OA. She took me to a meeting here in California. I was still living in Philadelphia. I was out visiting her here. She took me to a meeting out here in 2016. And I went into a room like this, it was a lovely meeting, and I sat there and thought, you people are nuts. This is a cult, give up sugar, are you kidding? Give up sugar, you might as well ask me to amputate my left leg. I'm not giving up sugar. So I left and binged in defiance, because well, that'll prove I'm okay, great. I just wasn't ready, I was not ready. And I have really come to see the gift of desperation that they talk about. You know what I mean? You have to really be desperate. And then the pandemic hit. And wow, I mean, is there ever a bigger gift to your disease than the pandemic was? You know what I mean? Like, isolate. Everybody's got to isolate. Everybody's got to stay at home. You've got to make all your food by yourself and eat it by yourself. Okay, it's party time and uh i gained 35 pounds i was already overweight you know obviously and then gained another 35. i literally by august of 2020 had literally no clothes left that fit zero i was wearing the same thing every day this is all i had and i had had it i just i reached a point where i'd had it my father had died in 2013 and we had been very close in his recovery and I had seen this recovery up close, but I had never applied it to my own life or my own eating. I didn't make the parallel, I didn't make the connection that we were both addicts in different programs. I was never a drinker because I had seen him and I was, I, I was on guard about that. So I rarely drank, even today. If I have a glass of wine a month, it's a lot. But the eating hit me right in the face. And I literally hit the floor one night in my apartment and I was sobbing and I said to him out loud, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to be where you are. Can you get me where you are? And I heard him say to me, go to bed. I went to bed and I got up the next morning and something just told me you, you can't, do, I can't do this another day. I literally looked in the mirror and thought I cannot do this one more day. That's it, I've, I've, I'm done. And I logged on to an OA meeting, and you know, on Zoom, and they're like, yeah, "Is anybody new?" And I, you know, I'm like, "Yeah, I'm new." And so, of course, the chat was open in that meeting, and people are, you know, sending you messages. You know, it's good to hear, blah blah blah, and that's lovely. And this woman, who you could tell one of the old broads. I love the old broads in OA because they're like hardcore. You know, forty years. And uh, she sent me a message, and she said. We're really glad you're here. And I wrote her back in the chat and said, you know what, I've got to tell you, I feel like I'm at the bottom of the well and I am never getting out. And she wrote me back and I never forgot this. And she wrote me back and she said, don't worry, we'll throw you down a rope." And they did. I went the next day and the next day and I did not want to go, okay? I mean, like we, we've all been there, right? I did not want to, I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to need this program. But I was desperate. And so I went and I kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And I got a sponsor who was here and I got a food program and I got an abstinence and I started working the steps. And I knew two and three would be a bitch. I mean, just awful because I had long ago decided that God was either dead or had written us off. I believe God existed. But I just believed like we had either died somewhere or we had just decided as a human race, we were hopeless. (laughs) And so it took me a long time to get through two and three because coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity was really rough. I just didn't, I didn't believe it. But you know, all these trite isms we have in OA, you know, works if you work it, worth it. It, it is. I mean, it does work if you work it. That is a really truism from us. But you've got to work it. And I did. Every day, I did the readings for today, Voices of Recovery and the steps, blah, 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 and the workbook with the endless questions. And did the fellowship calls. I still do three calls a day. I still go to a meeting almost every day. And I've been in here now a little over two years. And it's been amazing, and the turning point for me was that about six months after I was in program, my mother died, and uh, we were at the house, and you know people send food, that's what they do. And so um, I had told my brother, my one brother, who I was closest to, that I was in the program, and, People are sending all this food. They're dividing all the food up because you know, we've got to take it. And people are, I said, oh, I can't take this food. I can't, I cannot take this. So she shoves it at me and he says, oh, Michael, come on. We all know you're going to be fat again. So just take it. Oh. Okay. And I was like, wow, that would have broken me before. And I thought, no, I don't think that's true. Something in me that's bigger than me is saying, that's not true and i didn't take it and i said to him i want you to think about whether if dad were here you would have handed him a bottle of vodka and said we all know you're going to drink again so just take it all right. thank you and he acknowledged that and i didn't take it i was complete mess i mean obviously it is when you lose your parents and my life was my job was terrible, I just was lost. And I prayed about it a lot, and God said to me one day, repeat after me, my new life is coming. I said, okay, my new life is coming. And God said, louder please. And I screamed in the middle of my living room, my new life is coming. And six months later, my new life showed up. <coughs> I got a job out here, and I moved. Who moves at 58 and blows their life up? Evidently, I do. Because I had the foundation to do it, because I had the faith, because I had the belief that good things could happen if I would just take the path that was laid out for me, if I had the courage to believe that it was true, I could get on my own yellow brick road and manage it. You know, the interesting thing about The Wizard of Oz is that in the books, not the movie, in the books, when they, when they all go to the wizard, they all get a different version of the wizard. And I think about that with higher power. You know, everybody's like, oh, higher power, it's the goddess of the earth. I don't care who it is. It can be like a raccoon running by your window. Just believe in something. Believe that there is something bigger than you, because there is something bigger than us. And that if we tap into it, if we have the courage and the faith to do it, we'll show up as long as we listen and as long as we lean in. I really, truly believe that. And I did, I found it. Because on my road, I picked up some brains, and some courage, and some heart. And most of all, I found all of you. Because there is no place like home, and I found mine. Thank you so much for letting me talk. Okay. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay. Mark. Thank you for your share. Um, how is your relationship with your uh, older brothers now? Especially, in sometimes, if you relive the past or you talk about your experiences with children and having each of you having different uh, experiences. Thank you. Um, the question was, what is my relationship with my older brothers now, um, given you know my journey through recovery? It's a really interesting question. Um, my one brother does not know I'm in program. I'm not close to him. Um, and that has mainly to do with politics. You know, politically we're very, very different. And so we've agreed to the Eliza Doolittle rules of like, we stick to the weather and everyone's health. And, uh, but my other two brothers, know uh, uh, My one brother I mentioned, and then my eldest brother. It's funny, my eldest brother, when I did my ninth step, I had been stealing money from him as a child. We shared a room together and he was 10 years older. So he started working at 22, I was 12. I had no money. So he used to keep his money in the top drawer and I would pilfer money from him occasionally, just, I was very sneaky about it, like a 10, like once a month, like just so that, you know, he wouldn't notice. And uh, then I, uh, I had to do, you know, my ninth step, and so I had to give him the money back. So I figured out how much I had probably taken, and then at Christmas, last year, I, uh, I went to him and said, oh, by the way, I'm in a 12-step program, and I, I'm doing ninth step, and here's the money. And it was funny and he, uh, he was stunned. He had no idea that I was you know, in this program or anything. They've been, they've been very supportive. I mean, I don't think they completely understand. Um, it's, I think it's easier, drugs, alcohol, sex addiction are easier to sort of wrap your head around than a food addiction. Uh, especially I think in a, in a family full of men where there's a lot of big men and we like, he's a big guy, you know, being a big guy is sort of like a thing. So I think to them, but of course they weren't privy to me hiding you know, donuts in my bedroom drawer and, and all of that kind of stuff, you know what I mean? Like it's sneaky, so they've been supportive and, and we're close, but uh, I, I wouldn't say they totally get me but they've never really totally gotten me and that's okay, you know what I mean? Like I have come to a place where I accept them for who they are and I'm trying to get them to accept me for who I am and I do think they do. They don't really understand completely because I live a life that's very, very different than them. But I think that we've gotten to a really good place together. Yes? Thank you very much. Um, Every day, I'm sure you have a routine, but what is it that you do specifically when you have that negative self-talk? The question is, what do I do um, when I really feel the negative self-talk? It's a really good question. you know, a part of my program, uh, you know, I hear, you know, I, I, I do do a lot of two way prayer and I, I get a lot of answers back, sometimes that I do not want. And a year, a year and a half ago, I was, I was talking to God about love and I heard God say to me, Love is coming. And I thought, oh my gosh, my new life was coming and it showed up. So love is coming. Because my love life has always been a disaster. Um, and so I thought, great, this is going to be awesome. What a, I'll have a great lead share when I'm married. And then love didn't come. You know what I mean? It's a year and a half later. And I recently, you know, in the negative self-talk, thought, you lied. I said to God, you lied. And God said to me, no, love showed up. And I said, no, I'm looking around, and no. And I, was, I swear to God, this is true. So... And then God said, get up out of bed. So I did. He said, look in the mirror. I looked in the mirror. He said, love showed up. And I thought, oh, yeah, I get it. Because I love me now. And I've never loved me ever, ever. The things I used to say to myself, just horrendous. And now I don't. And I said to God, well, that's not really the love I was asking for. And God said, it's the love you need. And that is really what I always lean into when I get into negativity, which is, it's not what I want, it's not my self-will. What do I need? And I've gotta turn this over. I have gotta trust that you're gonna give me what I need. And if I pray and meditate, the message I always get is, are you on the path? I have given you a path, are you on it? because you know when you're veering off, when you're in the weeds. Like I know when I'm up against the bumper, I can tell it. And I have to readjust and I get back into the literature. I call somebody on the phone. I say I'm irritated, I'm pissed, like things aren't going the way I want. I'm the actor in the big book. If everybody would just do what I wanted, everything would be great. Why won't everybody just do what I want? You have to work it every day, every day. Yes. <clears throat> What do you feel when you walk by a Catholic church? You know, it's funny. The question is, what do I feel when I walk by a Catholic church? You know, obviously, I've had my share of lead chairs have like heard, and especially in the Catholic thing, people are really like, woo, pushing back. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not a practicing Catholic, you know, because they just don't really want people like me, which is okay. You know, they, they get to have their own rules. but. I miss the rituals. I, I, will, I miss the incense, the organ, the stained glass. I mean, that sort of always filled me with something. You know what I mean? Like, if you walk into a Catholic church, the solemnity of it, the environment of it is actually quite soothing. I always found it quite comforting. But uh, I, don't, I don't have any bitterness. I, I know a lot of people do, I don't. I just, my family is very Catholic and and very steeped in it, and I respect that, you know. And they respect the fact that I just am not part of that anymore, you know. But I I would never Catholic bash because I just, I've seen it work for people on their, you know, like, it, it really saved people. And so I'm like, you know what, it's not, it's not part of my program to judge all that. It is part of my program to say, what can work for me? What is my spiritual connection and my spiritual path? And I have it, and, it, and that's all that matters, and I let the rest go. Yes? Hi. Um, thank you for your lead. So you talked about step two and three being probably the most difficult ones to then going like, okay, my new life is coming, God is telling me that. Can you talk a little bit more from like A to B, like color in the details? How did you come to believe uh, and really what, what was that like? Yes, so the question is, how did I come to my my steps two and three were difficult and how did I actually manage to get through them and come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity? Whew! Okay. (laughs) The steps are amazing, right? Because the steps, um, you know, the the readings, the 12 and 12, and specifically the questions, force you to answer. They force you to face things that you don't want to face. And my sponsor was like, it doesn't matter. Like, it, if, it, it's not a magic bullet. It, you're not gonna just suddenly wake up one day and say, you know, and the choir's gonna sing and it's gonna be great and it's not how it works. It's a process and you don't have to embrace the higher power off the shake, but you must embrace the process. You must embrace the path, you must embrace the journey. Because if you don't do that, it won't work. You know, I've seen, I've had sponsees who window shop through the program, right? It doesn't work. You eat, you have, it is immersive. I really believe that, at least for me. You must jump in without the life raft and submerge or it doesn't work. And I think that's what I did. My step one was piece, you know, ironically piece of cake um, because I was desperate because I'd had it you know, I knew that I was powerless over this. And so that was not a lift. Two and three, you know, seeking out God, I just started talking. Um, I, I was not good at ritualistic prayer. And, I, and because of the way I was raised, I was, I was disinclined to do it. I was disinclined to get on the knees and, and do the folded hands whole thing. I just didn't want to do it. So what I started to do was I lit a candle and I sat. And I talked as I'm talking to you. And I would knock on something and say, hey, it's me. I don't know if you're there. I'm just going to assume you are because people tell me you are. I'm still skeptical, but I'm going to go with it. And here's what's going on. And I would just talk. Sometimes for an hour. Like, literally just talk. I mean, if anybody had passed by, they would have got nuts. But it started to work. Because I started to get messages back. And when you start to get messages back, you think, okay, this is bullshit. I'm not really, this is like all invented in my head. The problem with that is that the more you do the work and you start to get the messages back, the messages turn out to be true. Like it started to happen. Like I was more sane. I stopped being reactive with people. My biggest character defect, which I still battle today is scorekeeping. If you did something 20 years ago that hurt me, I will remind you. I've it, I've logged it, I can tell you when it happened, I can tell you what you said, and I can tell you why you're a terrible person for doing it. Terrible, terrible scorekeeping. And I have been able, the fact that I have been able to actually mitigate that, not over it, I work on it every day, but I am able to let things go now in a way I never was able to let things go. And so I think my spiritual journey happened because it was proof of concept. Because I saw the miracles happen. I remember a woman saying to me early on in that first Zoom meeting I went to, and I was doing fellowship with her, and she said, you have no idea how your life is about to unfold in front of you. And I thought, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> hallmark greeting I was not in the mood for, you know what I mean? But she was absolutely right because that's what happened. If you do this work, it does happen. There is a reward. You know, there is. And so I think that's what happened. I just thought, well, why would I stop doing this? Obviously, there is something bigger because look what is happening. And then the more things happened, the more I believed. And then the more I believed, the more things happened. And it all just sort of snowballed into itself. Um, You mentioned that you have a lot of regrets. So how does the promise of not regretting the past, you know, wishing to shut the door on it, show up for you? Great question. So the question is, um, I've talked a lot about regrets, so how do I sort of uh, manage this, like, not living in regret and not shutting the door on it? (sighs) This has been another big issue in my recovery, is the regret part. I have a lot of regrets, and... It's been very difficult not to, it's especially at night um, when I go to bed and it's dark and I'm doing my gratitude list. And then in, inherently it just leeches in. And I think, why did I do that? Why did, and especially about the love thing, right? Which is like, I think about bad, bad decisions I made. And why did I do it? And I threw all those years away. And I was in the, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just very, very powerful. And what I have learned to do is to be kind to myself about it. The kindness to myself has been such a tonic in living with that because I cannot, I just don't think it's reasonable to believe that I'm going to be devoid of regret for the rest of my life. I don't think it's possible. I don't think you've lived a full life if you have no regrets. Um, if you've lived, if, if you lived a life with no regrets, it means you've made no mistakes, which means you've taken no chances. And I certainly did. And some of them paid off, certainly professionally they did, uh, and some of them were, just blew up like nuclear explosions. So what I've tried to do is learn from the past and really lean into the idea that I've learned a lot and that my journey was my journey. And that it got me here. And so instead of really trying to focus, when I, when I do those moments, when I'm really sort of backpedaling into the past, I really try to say, yes, but where are we now? We have a life now we never thought we could have. That is full and rich, happy more than it's sad, you know, fulfilling. And so many people don't get to have it. They just don't. They don't get to have anything close to it. So why don't we just be grateful for what we have and let go of what we don't? It's a tough nut, and I don't always win. But I will tell you that I win more days than I don't now. And I'll take that. How has your program changed since you've become a sponsor? Ha, the question is, how has my program changed since I've become a sponsor? I was nervous about becoming a sponsor because you just never think you're ready. You just don't think you're smart enough or that you're strong enough. But I would say that I have become kinder to myself by being a sponsor, by seeing the frailties in other people who are just coming in. It reminds me of where I've come from and what I was like when I first came in. And the empathy that I have for my sponsees in their journeys, in the early days, then reminds me to have more empathy for myself and where I've been. And I think that's been really powerful <clears throat> takeaway for me. And also the judgment thing, right? I'm very judgy. And so I want people to do the, the, the steps the way I did them. I want them to you know, sort of do the homework. And how are you doing? Are you, I mean, and I've really had to learn to let go of that and to say that everybody comes to this program in their own way, they come to the steps their own way. And I'm only there to guide them through the steps. I am not there to fix their lives, I am not there to like hear all their drama, I am there to take them through the steps, if they want it, but I can't make them want it. And it reminds me of how badly I wanted it. And that was a gift that keeps on giving to me. What is sugar: at? Well the question is what is my abstinence? My abstinence is no sugar no refined sugar. I do eat natural sugar, I eat fruit, things like that, but uh, no refined sugar so no baked goods, cakes, cookies, ice creams, any of that stuff is off the table. Um, I, I don't eat um, I don't eat potato chips or anything in a bag, and I don't eat any food from a restaurant that has a drive-through so it has a drive-through I don't go so that is my abstinence. And then my food plan is, I eat two meals a day, I eat a brunch and a dinner, uh, and I have a cup of tea at night, that's it. And so, that works for me. Uh, that is, uh, and I try to, you know, I've learned how to cook. I was never, you know, who was cooking? I mean, I was driving everywhere, <laughs> you know. But uh, now I cook all the time, and it's been, that's been actually a, an unexpected benefit. I've really learned to enjoy cooking. Thanks for your lead. Um, I've heard in program that ego and low self-esteem are like two sides of the same coin. And so when you talked about feeling other, I would assume that that was like feeling like less than. And now in recovery, do you ever still feel other? And does that come more from a place of ego of like, I have a program, I'm like connected to God, like? who are these people, you know? Or do you sometimes slip back into that other feeling on the other side of the coin? Okay. There's a lot in that question. Okay, so (laughs) The question was around whether I still feel other now that I'm in program and, um, you know, sort of feeling less than and the the yin and yang of that and feeling the ego. So, I mean, I, I will always feel other. I I will say that. I will always feel slightly off center. Uh, I think that is just, that's ingrained in me. I I don't think you can erase your past. Um, You have to embrace it. And I sort of do embrace being other in a way that I really haven't now. And I think feeling other is okay. It's different than feeling less than. I don't think it's the same thing. And I am unique and I am not everybody's cup of tea. And I am, uh, I am my own person. But God was right, love did come. And that, the fact that I can love myself, all the warts and all, all the journey and all, all the regrets and all, that's enough. That's enough. And I still have days when I feel less than, but they don't last. And that's the difference. The less than's that I used to feel would lead to six months of binging. Less thans today lead to a couple uncomfortable hours until I'm able to call the right people and go to the right meetings. And that's really the difference. What's it like speaking live The question is what is it like speaking live at a meeting? It's, uh, it's been great. Uh, yeah it's been great it's different it's certainly different than the zoom experience i mean obviously i came into oa on the zoom experience so it's all i knew and then now that i've started to go to in-person meetings i really do appreciate the texture difference by being in a room with other people um, and the hugging part and all of it it's uh, it's great and i certainly appreciate all of you having me here today so i guess we'll leave it there